Who knew in the moment? The premise of the show is that as you're living your life, very rarely do you realize the magnitude of a moment while it's happening. However, in hindsight, we can see all of the pivotal moments that led to where we're at. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hello and welcome to another episode of Who Knew in the Moment, the podcast. I'm your host, Phil Friedrich, and today I'm honored to have Howard Primer with me. Howard is a very accomplished individual, not only in the political realm where he started, but then in the business realm and the entrepreneurial realm and uh, real estate thereafter. And uh, one of the things I'm most excited to talk with him about today is the understanding of how important having career success can be, but how most importantly, um, our personal lives and the things we're able to accomplish there are. So Howard, thanks so much for being on today. It's wonderful being on. I'm looking forward to this conversation and it's wonderful to look back and say who knew in the moment as, you, <laughs> as your theme implies, because it is really quite exciting when we discover what we didn't know and what it caused us to know. So yes. This will be a fun trip for me. Yes. Now, Howard, growing up, um, you know, was there much business in your family or talk a little bit about kind of like your familial relationships between parents and any siblings that you might have had? Well, I had two wonderful parents, two very long-lived parents that were hardworking people. Um, they demonstrated what the power of hard work really is. They were products of, of uh, the Depression. Mm. They were products of the Second World War. My father served in the Second World War. He came home and he ended up opening up because he couldn't find any other work. He opened up a dry cleaning establishment. And I grew up with my father being a hardworking owner of a small business and my mother helping him in the small business and frequently I helped him in the small business well that teaches you the ethic of hard work and at the same time the dedication that comes if you put that work secondary to taking care of your family and my parents were always there to take care of myself and my brother Mm. how powerful how powerful now as you were growing up uh, in high school, you ended up having a gal that you were courting at one point. So talk a little bit about, you know, going to high school and, uh, and a gal you met there. Well, I, I was blessed to grow up in a part of Chicago that had a very good and, and if not outstanding school system. Yeah. And I was at one of the three high schools in this post-war, of course, there was the baby boom and I'm a product of the baby boom. And there was a huge, huge increase in the number of students. So the schools were highly populated. My graduating class had 1700 people in it. So it was not a small gathering. It was yeah. a big gathering. And it was a very uh, rich environment where we were encouraged to be involved in things. Well, I was involved in student government. And I had the good fortune of being involved in student government with some people that later on became very active in politics and in achieving many things in the world. And they were bright people and wonderful people. Um, And I ended up dating one of those people in a very interesting way. And then I'll get to who that one person was. Um, In 1964, that's my age, the, we were in the middle of a political year. It was a presidential year, and we had two candidates running for office, Barry Goldwater and Lyndon Johnson. 
And the superintendent of our high school, and as I said, there were three high schools. So my class was just my class was 1700. If you combined all the high schools, there were about 25,000 students. And so as the superintendent of our high school decided that he wanted to have a mock election. And he then came up, approached me and asked me if I would be Lyndon Johnson. And I agreed to serve in that capacity. And I left it up to him to identify who should be Barry Goldwater in that political year. And as you may or may not know, if you know your history, Barry Goldwater was a very conservative candidate represent and Lyndon Johnson, of course, was coming out of the John F. Kennedy era and things of that nature. So the reality is he then turned to the president of the Young Republicans of Illinois to be Barry Goldwater, who was a classmate of mine. And that person was a woman by the name of Hillary Rodham. So Hillary Rodham, uh, later to go on to marry a president, Hillary Rodham and I spent the entire spring year, spring of that year in 1964, working together to, com to campaign around all the campuses, knowing all the candidate issues and, be, and debating them. And so we became very active with one another. And that led me into a relationship with her that was beyond student government. It was a political relationship, but it was also an intellectual relationship. And so Hillary Rodham and I, spent the entire spring of that year together almost constantly in order to prepare for those presentations and debates and speeches and things like that. And that led into the summer. So we've been close friends ever since. I, I continue to regard her as a very close friend. I didn't end up marrying her as, <laughs> as obvious, um, yes. but, but we had a good relationship and, and remain in that good relationship. As yeah. an editorial comment, I will say, the following as well. I then said, and I continue to say, that the brightest person I ever met, the smartest person I ever met was Hillary. Yeah. She was by far the beyond my capacity of intellect and things of that nature. She was absolutely brilliant. And to show you that brilliance and her, and her capabilities, go back again, 1964, it's a mock election. I'm Lyndon Johnson. She's Barry Goldwater. Lyndon Johnson carried every state in the country by a large margin. Barry Goldwater only carried Arizona, his home state. So Lyndon Johnson carried every state. He just won by a landslide. Hillary won or Barry won in our, in our little mock election. So she non knocked me out of the box pretty easily. That's funny. Uh, I, just a quick little... Uh, kind of editorial sidebar on that. One of the things I said to her at that time, um, and it, it was kind of a whimsical statement, is that I believed that she would be in the White House someday and that she'd be the first female president of the United States. And we laughed about it. I mean, it was a far-fetched notion. And later, fast forward, when Bill Clinton won the election. I was invited, along with a few other close friends, I was invited to the White House for the inauguration. And we ended up having a wonderful dinner with the Clintons and our classmates. And over the dinner, Hillary looked across the table at me and said, Howard, is this what you had in mind? <laughs> I said, I didn't, I didn't expect you to be the, the first lady. I expected you to be the president. 
And her answer to me then is, we'll just have to be patient. So <laughs> That's that, great. that was a, a great opportunity. It's ironic that she was running as a Republican, probably just as ironic as it, that I was running as a Democrat. <laughs> but in any case, the reality is it was a very unique relationship. It wasn't oh, the relationship awesome. that sustained me in life as my wife did, but oh. it was a, a, a special and remains a special relationship. No, that's great. So as you're learning politics in uh, you know, high school and whatnot, this ends up leading into kind of the beginning of your career as you decide, yeah, maybe you know, getting into politics is something that would be intriguing to me. So talk a little bit about getting into the political world and uh, some of the jobs and campaigns you worked on there. Well, I, I did not start out to wanting to be in the political world. I started out wanting to be a doctor. <laughs> Ended up working my way through high school and college as a surgical tech in a hospital, which is where I met the woman that ultimately became my bride. Um, so I was on my path to being a doctor. But as circumstances went on, and I spent much of the 60s as an activist, and, and an activist by that I meant I marched with Martin Luther King throughout the South, traveled all over the place. Uh, my father wasn't entirely enthusiastic about the fact that I wasn't in class a lot of the time. Um, this was when I was in college. And I also ran all, all over the country and was on the staff for Bobby Kennedy. So the reality is I got active in politics. I saw that as an opportunity to change the world. Yeah. And my ambition in life has always been to change the world. That from high school on, my ambition was. And so when I was a senior in college, I decided that there wasn't any way I was going to change the world as a doctor. Yeah. So I decided to go to law school, ended up getting hired very quickly while I was in law school by a U.S. senator who was on the Foreign Relations Committee at that time. So I was working on his staff. He was a Republican senator, by the way working on his staff, helping to fashion some of the major political issues of the 60s and early 70s from that point of view. And so I worked my way through college, working for the Senate, and even went to law school while I was working for the Senate. That's great. So in, in politics, I mean, that, that's a tough world to get into. It's a tough world to progress through. Talk a little bit about how some of those work ethic things that maybe you learned in your younger years end up helping you parlay into uh, the political landscape. Well, I, now I'm going to be cynical a little bit. Yeah. I, I discovered by working for the Senate and working in Washington, D.C. and getting to be close to all that, that my character was not compatible with that seat. So while I felt it was the way to fashion change and affect good outcomes in the world, I was not comfortable with a lot of the people I encountered in that arena. And so I refashioned my, for, my, my plans, went to law school, finished law school, and decided that the way to change the world most effectively is through business. So here I am, I've gone to law school all this time, and I'm asking myself, can I really make a major change as a lawyer, and particularly if the lawyer is biased towards a political future, or is there some more effective way to have an intimate outcome, and I decided to become a, a businessman, and I became an entrepreneur, and I had the good fortune of connecting with some very interesting business opportunities through those years, and so... Yeah. My shift from politics 
took me away, ironically, after three years of law school and practicing law for a little while, took me away, ironically, and put me into the business world. Yes. So to start an entrepreneurial journey, always a bit frightening, but I'm sure, you know, having seen a parent or your parents kind of start a business, it's like, well, I know it's possible. And so during your time in uh, the political realm, you had made certain connections and inevitably one of the uh, kind of matching of people that comes together is with a gentleman named Howard Schultz. And at the time uh, it was not a large Starbucks, but a very small Starbucks that you do some consulting with. So talk a little bit about that connection and how that came to be. Let me clarify that. I, I ended up being recruited to the state of Washington yeah. to run the court system in the state of Washington. Yeah. And I found myself, this is when I'm starting now to evolve away from politics, away from the legal background I was, because I ran the court system. Um, I was starting to look at business and I became a business entrepreneur at that point. Howard Schultz was introduced to me by one of the business leaders that came to know me quite well when I was starting out in business in the state of Washington in Seattle. Yeah. And his, the fellow who introduced us is a man by the name of Hugh Smith who ran the Seattle World's Fair. And Howard at that point had just returned back and, it's, and I'm going to embark upon a little broadening of the story because it's an interesting story. Howard worked his way through college at a little coffee house on a university campus, University of Washington campus. And the name of that coffee house was Starbucks. And more to that in a second, why that was named the name of the coffee house. And he fell in love with the idea of coffee. He, unlike I, I worked my tail off to go to law school. He decided to get an MBA. And what he decided to do is write, write his master's thesis on the culture of coffee. And off Howard went to Europe, spent the entire year going around drinking coffee at all the coffee houses in all of Europe. I went to college and law school and worked my butt off. And he's out drinking coffee in the coffee house. <laughs> anyway, he came back and the people who owned that coffee house in the University of Washington campus no longer wanted to be in that business because if you know anything about coffee in the, in the 70s, there was a period of time when coffee became a, a bad drink, that yeah. cancer was attached to the concept, concept of consuming coffee and people stopped drinking coffee and they started drinking herbal teas. And here, here are these coffee owners, this coffee house owner, and they're getting no business. Yep. So Howard returned, decided to buy their business and needed to raise some money. So this is when I'm put into the middle of the mix. He brings together through my friend, Hugh, some of the business leaders in Seattle to raise capital to open his first Starbucks, which still exists at Pike Place Market. Oh. And he needed a certain amount of capital. And what's fun about this story is that when Howard decided he wanted to go in this direction and my friend is in, is forcing Howard to recognize that he should be talking to me about this because I'll, I'll explain what I regard as the most important aspect of being an entrepreneur in a second. But at any rate, I developed this entrepreneurial skill, which is vision. And, and I call it third peak vision. And I'll unpack that in a minute. And my friend knew that. And he wanted me to be a part of the conversation with the investors for Howard um, so that I could in at least in some meaningful way 
provide additional vision for the investors and perhaps for Howard. And so the reality, Howard at that time only wanted up to open up a coffee house. And this is what's so interesting about it. And all he wanted to do was turn coffee into wine. And so, as you know, if you're a wine aficionado, you go to wine tastings and you love to sit there and you taste various wines from various parts of the world and you sip at this kind of wine and that kind of wine. Well, he wanted to treat coffee the same way because what's coffee, what makes coffee interesting is every bean has a different flavor. Every roast has a different flavor. And he wanted to turn it into an effete process of being a wine, a, a coffee tasting shop. My contribution, and I was hired for this contribution, was that that was not going to be successful, that he needed to build a brand in order to attract that, and that he needed to move towards a culture of coffee mm. and make the drinking of coffee be a very cultural experience. And to this day, when you go into a Starbucks, you're walking into a culture. Yep. The names are different. Everybody stands in line. They have their own mantra of what they want to order. You know, my hap- mine happens to be a venti 2% no foam latte, but everybody has their own mantra and you can hear people preach their own mantra. And in fact, other people in line correcting them if they don't use the right language. And so you develop a language, you develop a, a passion for it. And at the time of that first meeting, what makes that meeting who knew using your theme, one of the people who was there to be a, a potential investor said, there's no way I'm going to invest in a company that's going to try to sell me a cup of coffee for $1.85. I can go get a cup of bottomless cup of coffee for 25 cents, and I wouldn't drink the, the entire thing. So nobody's going to pay $1.85, $1.85 for a cup of coffee. And Howard's answer to this business leader, and, and by the way, he didn't invest, Howard's answer to this business leader is I see a day sometime in the future where where there'll be a coffee house, a Starbucks coffee house on every corner in Seattle, and people will stand in line to order more than $1.85 for a cup of coffee. Well, I don't know about you, but yesterday when I went and got my Starbucks, I spent $4.85 for a cup (laughs) of coffee, and there was a line, there was a long line. And anywhere I've traveled in the world, I've encountered the same thing at every Starbucks. There's people waiting in line for the opportunity to have a cup of coffee that's a little bit expensive and participate in the culture of coffee. Yes. One one quick little side note. Howard just announced or Starbucks just announced, and, and I'll get to the Starbucks in a second because I think it's an interesting part of the story. Howard just announced that he's launching a new division and he's going to call it Starbucks Reserve. And guess what they're going to do at Starbucks Reserve? Coffee tasting. (laughs) So now that he's made his brand as prominent a brand as it is, he now can launch that. It probably will be quite successful because people like coffee now. They've gotten used to the idea of coffee, the experience of coffee. And now the name is so strong that he can do what he intended to do when he started. (laughs) The other thing I want is is interesting, and most people do not know this. Do you have any idea why the name Starbucks is? 
Uh, I believe it started or stems from those teachers, but I don't know what the meaning behind it is. Okay. Do you remember Moby Dick? Uh-huh. The teachers, the three professors at the University of Washington were literature professors. They named their coffee house after the character in Moby Dick named Starbucks. Huh. Now, even more interesting than that, if you know the story of Moby Dick, it's a story of Ahab and his muse was the great white whale. Yeah. Starbuck was the deckhand that he has. And in the movie with Gregory Peck, he has all sorts of tattoos on his face and things of that nature. His muse was his mermaid. Because that's the mermaid the saved his life and that's the logo. So the name Starbucks goes all the way back to Moby Dick. And most people are oh. not aware of that. It's a fascinating who knew kind of a story. And it's only because those three literature professors chose to name their store after a book they taught at the University of Washington. How awesome. I love it. I love it. So that is one opportunity that you have to do some consulting and to, you know, share your knowledge. And then another that stemmed from, once again, another relationship that you had already uh, created before getting into your entrepreneurial journey was in the uh, space with a gentleman named Bill Gates. But it was not the Bill Gates that we know today. It was a Bill Gates of many years ago. So talk a little bit about that connection and uh, how it came to be with his father. Well, that, that allows me to kind of segue back and, and focus on third peak thinking. Yeah. That I, I said that the thing that I got to be known for and I continue to be known for is vision. I was in Seattle. Seattle is a mountain climbing country. Yeah. And back in the early days before we had satellites and global satellites and, and pictures that told us whatever topography was, you didn't know what the topography was. If you wanted to know what what the highest mountain is, you had to go find it. And so as a consequence, mountain climbers reference the process of climbing the highest mountain. In other words, the vision of knowing where you want to go as third peak vision. And so you, a typical climber at that time in the old days would look out, they'd see a mountain out there and they'd say, that's the tallest mountain. I'm going to climb that mountain. And then they'd get to the top of the mountain, they'd look out and they'd say, oh my goodness, there's a taller mountain right over there. If I only knew, they go back down the mountain and set a course back up to the taller mountain, only get to, to get to the top of that taller mountain and actually see the third peak. Yeah. The key to business that I learned then and I enjoy sharing today is it's always to look in your vision beyond your first peak. If you don't know your first peak is, is only your first peak, it becomes your only peak. Mm. The goal in all of business, being an entrepreneur, is the ability to envision the true destination, that third peak that's going to manifest the greatest outcome for your business and for your life. Yeah. And so my gift at that time was to articulate that, to talk about that, and to this day, my gift is to be able to talk about that and give people the insight. Now I'll get to the question you asked. Yeah. So one of the reasons I was brought to the state of Washington to run the court system is because the president of the Washington State Bar was a, a man named Bill Gates Sr. And Bill Gates Sr. was my sponsor when I were to run the court system. He, be, he was president of the Bar Association during that time. And 
and it's incidental, but the Washington State Bar is a integrated bar, meaning the courts really run the bar. And so I was actively involved in running the Bar Association with Bill Gates. Once I left the work, working for the state, I was then known for this third peak thinking and things. Bill Gates Sr. calls me up and says, I need you to come in and talk to my son. He dropped out of school and he decided he wanted to fool around with computers. <laughs> and he doesn't know what he's doing and where he's going. And he and his partners are working on something. And I'd like you to come in. I'll pay for it. I want you to come in and hear what they're planning to do and lean into them with some third peak thinking. Yeah. And I did. So I got to meet with Bill Gates and Paul Allen and the other 12 people that started that company in this very small room. It's probably not much larger than the office I'm sitting in right now. And um, they were working away and their original plan was to write a computer program so that you could take a floppy disk and put it into your computer and then you could write your own software. That was their original plan. Yeah. And may have been successful. But I, my answer to that is nobody's going to want to spend that much time writing their own software. The computers are not going to make it if they, everybody has to write their own software. So if I were you, I'd take that same operating system that you're building and find a computer manufacturer and sell it to them. And that's exactly what happened. Bill Gates got his start because they sold DOS to IBM. IBM paid a royalty on every computer, desktop computer, that they sold because of the fact that they needed the operating system to make it work. And yeah. that became the foundation of Microsoft. Microsoft grew from that. So that was a good fortune for me to be there. I enjoy working with my computers to this day and think what would have happened using your theme again. Who would have known at that time? Because we would not have computers we know that we know now, yeah. at least not with Bill Gates or Microsoft's assistance, we yes. would have probably a different course we'd be on had we not had microcomputers grow out of that so that people could distribute their uh, data processing capability. Yeah. So I want to dive into the third peak thinking and, you know, talk a little bit about like actionable steps someone listening could take away. So I think you make a phenomenal point of, you know, hey, we, we see this first level that we think that's what I want to get to, only to get there and realize that we're capable of more or there is something bigger out there. So as somebody is, you know, writing their vision, whether it's for their business, for their life, right, whatever they're trying to accomplish, how do you encourage them to think about that third peak, even if it doesn't seem attainable or doesn't even seem fathomable when you're thinking about it? The first thing that you have to do is, and, and there's more than just the third peak being something out there. Yeah. When you make a decision where you're going to go as a goal, you are making a decision for using resources, whether money or time. Yeah. You're using resources and those resources are precious. No matter how far into business or life one is, those resources are very precious. So it's incumbent upon everybody who really has an ambition in life, sets their goals to pull back and not do the thing that seems most expedient, but to look for the thing that is most meaningful. Mm. And so 
Third peak thinking is looking for the most meaningful outcome that may not be as expedient, but you have to go through that first expedient step with the understanding that you're using it to get to the third peak. Yeah. And, and so that's everybody who's in business at any time has a tendency to grab onto the first thing that's going to throw cash in their direction, make that the thing they're doing, finding the other things that they're pushing aside because they got to stay focused on making that cash or whatever other form of success they want to measure. When in fact, they're getting inundated with information that gives them an opportunity to understand there's something bigger. There's something more meaningful. And the more meaningful generally is because you come to know what it was you were trying to do to begin with. Remember, when I told the third peak story, the key to the third peak story is the mountain climber wanted to climb to the highest peak, not just climb a high peak, but the highest peak. Well, if that's your goal, you have a different set of agendas that you have to embrace than just say, oh, I got to the top of the mountain and now I'm done. Yeah. And most people I know who are mountain climbers, they're never satisfied with once they get to the top of the first peak, they want another peak, but they spend a huge amount of resources to get to that other peak that they should have gone to in, to begin with. So thinking about that, I, I, I almost feel like additionally, though, and this maybe contrasts a little bit with that last part of your comment, but is sometimes you have to climb the first peak to even know that there is a second one, right? So maybe you've got this goal and you're working to get there. And it's like, oh, well, now that I've hit that, I didn't even know that now I'm able to see what else is possible though. And I think sometimes getting those smaller wins can lead to bigger wins as long as you don't allow that to be the plateau. So maybe, you know, share a little bit of your thoughts on that. I agree with you, but remember the, the, the purpose of my comment is to amplify your resources most effectively yeah so if i'm going to climb the highest mountain i'm going to have to climb another mountain first to get the skills that i need to learn the pitfalls that i have to avoid and so i'm going to make it easier for me to begin with but i understand i'm doing that because i'm applying my resources in a knowledgeable way to get to the goal that i ultimately wish to get to that's if good. I don't know about those other things, I'm going to spend more resources sources to get to that first peak and all of a sudden discover that I got to spend the same resources to get to a second peak. That's really so good. it's only about information and knowledge and using your resources most effectively and efficiently. That third peak thinking is so very critical to anybody who wishes to be an entrepreneur or yeah. pursue whatever their goals in life happen to be. That's really good. So, Howard, as you're progressing through, something that continues to be a, a piece of your business is you're giving good information and others are taking it and utilizing it in the way that you've encouraged them to utilize it and they're growing rapidly. And your wife and yourself have a conversation and she says, you know, you're a lot like a match, but I think you could be a bonfire. And so talk a little bit about that analogy and uh, just that description of how that kind of changed your business moving forward. I had the good fortune of being a consultant because of my vision and my ability to articulate that vision in the context of the person I'm working with. 
not my context. Yes. But I, I hear or see what they're trying to do. I help them to envision what it is they want to do beyond that. And so throughout the 70s and the 80s and most of the 90s, I was fortunate in being able to help a lot of businesses, some of those businesses becoming quite big. Um, my wife sat down with me one day and said, Howard, I, I love the fact that you're helping all those businesses. Um, my wife is the most important person in my life, was until I lost her. Yeah. And she basically stared at me, but what about us? You're helping everybody else. <laughs> Why don't we build our business? Yeah. Why aren't we the ones pursuing our third peak? Why aren't we doing that? And she was right. And so I sat and I asked myself, what do I care about? Mm. What can I get involved in that's mine that I do for us that is meaningful? And what I kept coming back to was housing. The most important thing, and if you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs, yeah. first, we got to take care of our food. Yep. Second is shelter. Yeah. So the fact is the that our housing system is so bad that many people are never satisfied in the fact that their housing is adequately taken care of or that they're taken care of in their housing. Yeah. So I decided I'd get into housing and began owning and operating apartment complexes. Yeah. And I did it by pursuing it in an entirely revolutionary way. And it ended up as a result of that outperforming everybody else in the same markets that we were in because we were delivering more than just what I re refer to typically four walls, a ceiling and a floor. Most people in the housing business on the business side yeah. only are interested in delivering the four walls, a ceiling and a floor. I don't care if you're building a house for somebody or you're renting a home to somebody. They're only interested in delivering the product, yeah. not the experience. Yep. I decided it was important if we're going to be in housing to pay attention to delivering the experience. And so what I did for most of the 20th, 21st century is I owned and operated apartment complexes yeah. and I was delighted in it. The people who lived in my communities loved living in my communities. The people who worked in my communities loved working in my community. We were delivering a culture of feeling and concern. Yeah. And what is more important is delivering something that helps elevate the customer as opposed to just delivering the product to the customer. Yeah. Now, as you are getting into, you know, the um, real estate side of things, are you still doing consulting on the side? Did you kind of put that on the back burner and just put all of your efforts and energy into real estate? Talk a little bit about that transition for yourself. Yeah, it was my, yeah, I had to make a commitment to me to me effectively. Yeah. I, I was invited into helping in, in various places, but that kind of help means I've got to devote some energy to the person. And I can't devote energy to that person if I'm devoting energy to this person, me yeah. Yeah. and my family. And so my primary concern was building that business and building multifamily is not an easy business to no. build because it's a process of first getting in there and cleaning up messes. It's a process of, uh, dealing with situations. I, one anecdotal situation I'll give is I, I bought a property right outside of Buckhead in Atlanta, if you know the Atlanta market, Buckhead, and if I keep shaking the phone, I'm sorry. 
Um, but Buckhead is a great market. And I bought this beautiful property just north of Buckhead and took, took possession of it. It looked good on paper, only to discover, and not very long after I took ownership of it, that it was the, how do I want to put the comfortable house of ill repute for the Buckhead market. So most of the people that were my residents, my tenants, were in fact in the trade. And I had a serious problem. I had not only to fix up that, that apartment complex, that community, but I had to take and change the entire, entire dynamic of the community. And so I had to let go of everybody who was living there and oh, had wow. to start all over. So you don't know those things. You got to make 100% of your commitment to getting to your goal. You've got to stay true to your core values. You got to stay true to you, the ethic that makes everything possible. And then you have the ability to attract people who are truly wanting that kind of a life for themselves. Yes. So you never know what you're getting when you get in a multifamily. So therefore, I needed to devote myself and my investors, of course, insisted on this 100% to my own business. Yeah. No, that's good. Now, you know, you've talked about a few times just mentioning, you know, um, your wife that's now passed, but talk a bit, just a bit about the support um, in a relationship and how that's so important, especially as a you know business owner and someone that's a visionary trying to grow things is, you know, having that rock at home that is not only supporting you, but is with you on that journey and, and willing to say, hey, if that's what we need to do, or here's a piece of encouragement, or here's an idea, Howard, maybe it's time to take a turn. Well, I'm a hard worker. Yeah. You're a hard worker. It's what sets us apart is that you're able to put in the effort, put in the time and do the things. But I will tell you that my hard work never was more important than my family. Mm. So I devoted every ounce of my available energy first to my family and then to my work. Now, I, I don't need a lot of sleep, so I have plenty of hours to do that. Yeah. But the reality is one of the things many of us do when we get into business is we turn our backs on that domestic relationship, that, that rock relationship that is so essential. So yeah. my family became my priority. That was a conscious decision. Yeah. You had to make that part of your core values and you had to attach those core values to everything you did every, every minute of the day. So I worked hard. I led well. I energized people with vision and things of that nature. But my wife and my family, and I have four beautiful daughters from her, became my, my number one priority. So that took precedence over everything else. And because of that, my wife was so very supportive of me um, that I don't know that I could have made it happen without her. I yeah. had a happy home to come to. I had a beautiful bride that was waiting for me. I had four beautiful daughters. It was, it fulfilled me in ways that my business could not. Yes. And in fact, to complete this, the story on my housing business, I left the housing business because my wife became terminally ill in 2016 and I had a choice of devoting myself to my business or devoting myself to my wife during what was left of her life and so I liquidated my entire business in behalf of my wife and um, I'm just now on the other side of that process recovering my life yes now I I think that's such a um 
you know, good point for someone that has experience like yourself. And that is, you know, oftentimes it seems like business is the most important thing, or it seems like a next goal is the most important thing. But at the end of the day, the people that are in our lives, whether it's a spouse, you know, parents, siblings, whatever it is, that truly is the most important. So talk a little bit about that for you, Howard, and, you know, as you reflect on your life and, and what that's meant to you. I think that the exciting part about my life is that I never lost sight of the, the fact mm. that family was like the core of my existence. Yeah. Two solid, strong parents lived a long life. My mother died at 102. My father died at 98. They were strong and worked until they died, actually. And my brother is a hardworking individual that is still one of my closest friends to this day. Yeah. So family is at the core of who we are and they define us. And when we start pushing that aside, our definition of our sense of value, our core values start to diminish because they become too transitional. Mm. It's easy to let a core value be something else because it's easier to be something else to get certain goals taken care of. Core values must be at the foundation of what you do and families and that's really the source of core values are the place you get your core values. Yeah, that's so good. Well, Howard, I, I want to say thank you for sharing your story, but are there any other pivotal moments that stand out to you uh, that we haven't gone over today that you'd like to share? Uh, no, I think we've pretty well covered a lot of territory and a, and a significant number of my past relationships. Uh, but I can tell you from the point of view of hindsight. Yes. Life is so exciting, and the future of life is even more exciting. Mm -hmm. So I am now looking towards my future without my bride, and it is still exciting. There's still opportunities. There's still positions of potential value that you can contribute to the world, and there certainly are third peaks to find. So I am happy to be able to say, if you energize your life, you hang on to your core values, and you love those who love you, you'll it will put you in a very good space. Hmm. I love that. Well, Howard, thanks again so much for sharing your story. Um, it's an honor to have you on, honor to hear your stories. And I know people are better for having heard it. So thanks again. Thank you. I appreciate your invitation. Take care.